welcome back to the Fearless Flyer. I am James, and I'm joined by my co-host, as per usual, Grant. Do you want to say hi? Hello, everyone. I hope everyone's well. And uh, this is an episode that we talked about right at the start of the podcast when we did the introduction, and it's um, going to be something that we've both looked forward to. So we're back into it, episode 22, looking at system backup, redundancy, doors and slides, water and toilets. But looking back into the last episode, we discussed the instrumentation, the autopilot, and also briefly touched on about landing in fog using the instrument landing system, or ILS, coupled with the autopilot. Today, we're going to chat about the aircraft system backup, or another term that we use in the industry is redundancy. Uh, we'll chat about the doors and the emergency slides, how water's stored in the aircraft, and finish up talking about, uh, well, some toilets. <laughs> so system redundancy or backup. In a car, if something goes wrong, you can simply pull over to the side of the road and phone someone to come and either repair your car or take it to a garage where it can be fixed. Yeah, that's right. And unfortunately, this is not the case in an aircraft. Also, we don't want to be in a position where we have a fault where we need to land at the nearest airport to go and get it fixed. So the concept of redundancy is to prevent a disruption of a system in case of a technical failure which then enables the aircraft to be able to continue to still operate safely. Yeah. So as an engineering term, you could think of this as a duplication of critical components within a system. Or another way of looking at it is simply to increase the reliability of the overall system. Yeah. And on some aircraft, some systems may even be triplicated. Not only does this further enhance the safety of a particular system, It also enables continued operation, albeit with some applied limitations. The probability of all three failing being extremely unlikely. In our day-to-day lives, we can see redundancy built into lots of things we do. If you go up to traffic lights, for an example, at an intersection, there's generally at least two traffic lights. And if one stops working, you can at least look out the other side and look at the other one and the traffic can keep on going. Yeah, and things like uh, suspension bridges, they have multiple cables hanging down off them, and these numerous cables are a form of backup or redundancy. The obvious example we have on most aircraft nowadays is aircraft having at least two engines, but also within the aircraft are multiple systems with backup or redundancy built into these systems. So we're just going to discuss now some of these main systems and the different ways that backup or redundancy has been designed into these particular systems. So as you just mentioned, engines would probably be a a good place to start with this discussion. Yeah, the engines are very expensive, and they're expensive to operate from a maintenance point of view. However, there's been a significant increase in engine reliability over the last 20 plus years. So the industry has moved from four to two engines on most commercial aircraft nowadays. For operating a two-engine aircraft, which we call a twin-engine aircraft, all calculations are predicated on the loss of an engine at the worst possible time. So an engine failure at the worst possible time, which would normally be something like a heavyweight takeoff. So all our calculations and takeoff performance take into account an engine failure at the worst possible moment during the takeoff. And we'll discuss takeoff performance in a later episode where we look at this worst case scenario and how we calculate and react to an engine failure on takeoff. Suffice to say, from a redundancy point of view, the second engine is a backup and it allows us to continue to take off, climb, and then maintain altitude while we 
return to land or say during the cruise if an engine feels unwell then would divert to a nearby suitable airport. Uh, most aircraft use hydraulics, which is sort of the next big system in an aircraft. What sort of examples on the hydraulic systems do you have in regards to redundancy? Yeah, like you say, most aircraft, they have at least two hydraulic systems. The 737 has two systems. It's called the A and B system with a small standby backup system. Within each A and B system, there are two pumps. One's engine-driven and the other one's electric. The standby hydraulic system uses a single electric motor-driven pump and will automatically operate when pressure is lost in either the main A or B system and when a few other criteria are met. But we'll talk about the Boeing 777 hydraulic systems, as I'm currently familiar with that. We have three systems on this aircraft named left, centre and right. The left and right system are similar and they operate their respective thrust reverses. The right system also operates the normal brake system. And both the left and right systems also operate various flight controls throughout the aircraft. The center system is the big system and it also operates various flight controls, plus it operates the alternate brakes, the landing gear extension and retraction, nose wheel steering, and the flaps and slats. So the left and right systems, they have two sources of power to maintain the 3,000 PSI pressure, which is pounds per square inch. They have one engine-driven hydraulic pump and one electrically-driven hydraulic pump. The centre system, it has four hydraulic pumps. Two of them are electrically-driven and the other two are air-driven pumps. So just to someone who's not familiar with uh, PSI or hydraulic systems, um, pounds per square inch, is that literally... Yeah, um, if you had a, a weight of uh, 3,000 pounds and you balanced it on a square inch, so that's how much pressure would be on that area that's pushing down on the pipe. So that's 3,000 PSI. That's a huge amount of pressure. Yeah. So not only can we see now that there are multiple hydraulic systems, there are at least two different types of pumps within each system and they are powered from completely different sources, one pump being sufficient to supply the hydraulic pressure in each system. So having at least two pumps within each system allows for redundancy should one fail, and you have all three hydraulic systems operating the flight controls built in for redundancy. So going one step further, using the 777, for example, there is only the centre hydraulic system to drive the flaps. But the flaps have their own backup system in the form of electric motors from the electrical system. And these will drive the flaps in case of a central hydraulic system failure. We call this mode secondary and alternate mode, and they run a bit slower and they don't extend out as far. But we take this into account on approach and landing. Landing gear extension redundancy in case of central hydraulic failure is done primarily by releasing the uplocks holding the gear up and allowing gravity and ear loads to extend the gear. Ground brakes, they're operated by the right hydraulic system. They're backed up by the central hydraulic system with a third backup being called an accumulator, which is simply a storage container of hydraulic pressure. So we've discussed the engines and hydraulics, but what about the electrical system? Yeah, the electrical system power is provided by engine-driven generators and also a generator on the auxiliary power unit, the APU as a backup. The aircraft only needs one generator to function. Now, after all this, for those sceptical of multiple failures, 
we have batteries that can power our instrumentation and the 777 and a lot of other large aircraft also have a thing called a RAT, which is a ram air turbine. And this is a big fan that extends either automatically or manually. And on the 777, it comes down from under the fuselage belly and it has our fins on it like a fan and it spins around in the airflow and that provides hydraulic and electric power to the aircraft systems. There's a lot of sources of power on the 777 from different areas of the aircraft. For example, I just thought of the APU, which is primarily designed to operate on the ground, but it can, as you just mentioned, be used in the air as a backup uh, supply for electrical power and pneumatic air while in the air. So it's just another example of a redundancy support system. Yeah, and you're right. You just uh, specified the 777, but most aircraft, if not all commercial aircraft in the world, they have this redundancy concept built in. Um, As I say, we were just using the 777 as an example, but I know Airbus and other Boeings, they all have these types of redundancy built into the aircraft's uh, systems. Let's talk about doors. We briefly talked about these in episode 17 on pressurization, where we discussed why a door can't be opened in flight. The majority of commercial aircraft doors are quite complex. And further to what we discussed in episode 17, during an emergency, there is a power assist system to help open the door. And also packed into the base of the door is an extremely small package that inflates into a huge slide or a slide raft. So yeah, you might hear uh, the public address uh, saying something like cabin crew, arm your doors and cross-check. And the cabin crew uh, arming the automatic doors so that they can open and the slide deploy system can occur. Yeah, if during a requirement to evacuate the aircraft, simply unlocking the door will engage the system that automatically completes opening the door and the slide package will drop out from underneath the door and it will inflate. If aircraft fly over water, they're also required to carry life rafts. However, most large commercial aircraft fly over water nowadays, and most aircraft door slides are known as slide rafts. And that is the crew are able to detach the slide from the aircraft, and it now becomes a raft. So each life raft goes through a very time-consuming process before it goes into an aircraft. Very quickly, a lot of material is cut and glued together, and then it's inflated, deflated, packed into a very small box which represents the dimensions of below an aircraft door. It's then tested on an aircraft mock-up, then deflated again and packed away. There is a pressurised cylinder filled with either nitrogen or a mix of nitrogen and carbon dioxide, and this cylinder is also packed away next to the slide raft for its purpose being to inflate the slide. Yeah, that's right. However, there isn't enough air in that cylinder to completely inflate the slide. So a thing called an aspirator is connected to the inflation system, and this allows outside air to be sucked into the inflation process, thereby significantly contributing to the inflation of the slide, and therefore meaning you don't need as big a cylinder in the first place to inflate the slide. Approximately, an aircraft slide takes six seconds to inflate, which is very impressive when you consider how large these uh, slides are. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's very quick. However, it takes about two days to pack it away, and the cost of a repack can be anywhere from six to 30,000 US dollars. So you don't want to inadvertently deploy them. So we all need water moving on from the slide uh, discussion. And most aircraft have water fountains on them uh, with the term possible water written by them. 
potable water simply means that you can you can drink that water. Yeah, there's the odd destination that we fly to with my current airline, and we're not allowed to load potable water because it's not up to potable water quality. Depending on the size of the aircraft as to how many potable water tanks there are, but most of these tanks uh, where they hold the water, they're slightly pressurised and some form of heating in them to prevent them from freezing. The water is not only used for drinking, but it's also used for toilet flushing and it's used in the hand basin taps as well in the toilet. And this water is filled up when the aircraft obviously is on the ground by a potable water ground servicing vehicle. Yeah, that's right. Now, the definition of potable water means it's safe to drink. However, most airlines still offer their customers bottled water. The reason being is on the remote chance of some form of bacterial contamination in the potable water, it would likely mean a diversion as too many passengers being ill would likely overload the toilet system. So here's some interesting facts on the potable water storage tanks on various aircrafts. So the Boeing 737-800, which is quite a common aircraft around the world, has one water tank and that has a capacity of up to 227 litres or 60 gallons. Yep, that's right. And the uh, Boeing 777-300ER, it has three tanks on board it and they hold 1,300 litres or 344 gallons of water between those three tanks. The Boeing 787 has two tanks of water totaling 1,022 litres or 270 gallons. Yeah, and the A380, it has six tanks uh, totaling 1,700 litres or 449 gallons of water. And it also has an option to have bigger tanks and it can take up to 2,266 litres or just under 600 gallons of water. That extra water, I'm assuming, is for the uh, showers on board that aircraft. Yes, I presume that's the case, yeah. So water's got to go somewhere in toilet waste, so let's have a bit of toilet talk. And despite popular belief in telling my father that we dump the toilets over uninhabited areas, this is not true. However, back in the very early days of flying, this was the case. Now, a toilet waste goes into a special tank, which can be downloaded at the destination. I don't know if that's the right term, but that's what yeah. I'm running with. Yeah, yeah, downloaded's a nice term. <laughs> Anyway, so nowadays the toilets, they use a vacuum type design and thus they make a lot of noise when you flush them. And the reason for this is the waste holding tank air pressure is a lot lower than inside the aircraft cabin as the holding tank is basically connected in essence to the much lower outside air pressure. So there is always a decreased pressure within that tank and it's a lot lower than the pressure inside the cabin, hence the name vacuum flush. So when you hit the flush button, the high pressure inside the cabin pushes whatever's in the bottom of the toilet into a pipe system that leads to the waste holding tank. There are filters to prevent the waste continuing to vent overboard, so the waste simply settles into the waste tank. So if you accidentally drop something into the toilet bowl, whatever you do, don't press the flush button because once you press it, whatever's in the toilet bowl is on a one-way journey. Yeah, that's right. And upon landing... A vehicle called a lavatory service cart turns up, or what we affectionately call the honey wagon, and it connects a pipe to a valve on the aircraft, and it downloads the surge tank's contents, including anything precious you flush down there. And I'm 100% certain no one's going to want to sift through the contents of the honey wagon looking for the precious item that you accidentally flushed away during the flight. 
Just one further thing, things like grey water from the sinks, uh, from the hand basins, that doesn't go into the sewage system. That's generally vented overboard because it's uh, it's not going to do any harm during the flight. We've talked about redundancy here, which basically just means backup. And uh, there are lots of uh, systems on aircraft and therefore lots of backup components. It's only mechanical nature that something will break eventually. Say a wheel brake isn't working, an electrical generator on an engine is unserviceable. But can we continue to operate the flight if something like this occurs? Yeah, we can probably continue to operate if, say, we weren't at our main base and the airport we were departing from didn't have any spares, we might be able to operate under a procedure called MEL. Now, MEL stands for Minimum Equipment List. It's a rather large book that gives us an alleviation to operate with a system not functioning at 100%. So you mentioned brakes. Say, for example, a brake isn't working on the 777. The MEL allows us to operate the flight but we have to take into account the deactivated brake and we have to take that into account in our takeoff and landing calculations. It is therefore possible that in this scenario, we might have some penalties imposed upon the flight, like we need to take off and land at a lower weight. Another example you mentioned, the engine-driven electrical generator, say that can't be fixed. Uh, we can still operate the flight, but the flight has limitations imposed on us and on the Triple seven. If an electrical generator from one of the main engines isn't working, the alleviation says we can operate, but we must operate the APU, their auxiliary power unit, throughout the entire flight. And because we're using the APU generator, we'll burn an extra 90 kilograms per flight hour. Plus, because the APU door is open, it causes drag, we must take this into account in our fuel burn, and our fuel burn will increase by 2.5%. Also, our ETOPS requirements are reduced, and we'll talk about ETOPS in a later episode. But for now, with this particular MEL being applied, this simply means we can't go too far away from suitable airports. So the MEL has limits on how long the component is allowed to be unserviceable and other bits of operational limitations and procedures to apply. So you can see from these two examples that we can operate safely and legally, albeit with certain safety limits and penalties being imposed upon the operation of the flight. That's uh, pretty much wrapped up this episode. Hopefully you now understand that we have lots of backup systems, which uh, we use the term redundancy. These backups ensure the show can keep going. And sometimes when a primary system becomes unserviceable, there may be some operational limitations while using the secondary systems. Really, important systems might also be triplicated, but whatever happens, the systems not only have been designed with keeping the aircraft running, but doing so safely as well. Yeah, the aircraft manufacturer and aviation regulators have developed this MEL, which the pilots use as a reference to see whether it is safe and legal to operate the aircraft with a system operating in a reduced capacity. And we also talked about the slide rafts, the potable water and the surge system. The next episode, we're going to be discussing pilot training from the very beginning until flying for an airline. People that want to become pilots out there can hear what it takes to uh, become a pilot. Yeah. Or how much yeah, money that, it's going to cost you. Yeah, it's going to cost a lot of money, but at least uh, you, you're you at uh, Massey there. So that's a pilot training school. So I'd imagine you'd be able to get some good information for our listeners from folk there, James. Yeah, I'll speak to some people who are in the program and uh 
get some information for you guys. Look forward to that one. Okay, then thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So from me, it's goodbye. Yeah, and from myself, I hope this has made you feel a bit more comfortable flying. Uh, Have a good day and we'll see you in the next one.